G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. This show is an interesting mix between pop culture and personal development with a very wide range of guests that come on the show for a chat from the sports space, philosophy, health and fitness, entertainment and everything in between. The idea is to entertain or to educate you guys and hopefully sometimes both, either through just myself or with the guests that come on the show as we explore different ideas and concepts and have some really interesting conversations. The mission with the Brain Taming Podcast is to raise a million dollars, and that all starts with uh, building an audience and a platform. So thank you for tuning in. Our goal is to raise a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family, and be sure to subscribe. With that said, strap in and enjoy this episode. Okay, we're back on air for a very special edition of the podcast. I say it every time, but this one really is a, a special episode. We're fortunate enough to be joined by Paul Roos, one of the very best and, and certainly one of the most respected names in football, superstar player throughout his 17-year career and going on to become a very successful senior coach, which we'll be talking a bit about today, of course. But outside of his impressive resume, it's really his approach to the game of footy, uh, to coaching, of course, to leadership and ultimately to life. It's really his philosophies and, and the way he thinks um, that's ultimately the, what I'm most fascinated by and, and really why I wanted to get you on the show for a chat today, mate. So with that said, Rosie, thanks for carving out some time and, and joining me today. Yeah, thanks, mate. No, looking forward to having a, a good chat. Thanks for having me on. Now, I know you're a pretty humble man and I'm sure you've heard your CV read out too many times to count. We're just having a laugh off air. Uh, but in the unlikely event that someone listening doesn't know who you are, I do want to share just the highlights real uh, quickly to set the scene and, and give some context as to who you are what you've been able to accomplish. And I think that'll give more context as to why I'm so pumped to have this opportunity to, to pick your brain today and share our conversation with the listeners. So, mate, you just sit tight for a moment <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> and uh, relax, and then we'll dive into it. For the uh, for the listeners, Paul Roos, if you're not already aware, uh, he had an extremely decorated playing career as an AFL footballer, starting his journey at the Fitzroy Lions back in 1982 before moving to the Sydney Swans in 95 to finish his career amassing an impressive 356-game playing career across the two clubs. A few of the highlights among a long list of accolades. Uh, he was club captain at Fitzroy from 88 to 90 and 92 to 94 and earned himself the league's best captain award in 92, earned himself five Mitchell medals, the Fitzroy uh, Footy Club's best and fairest, and landed a spot in the club's team of the century. Seven-time All-Australian, received the league's uh, MVP award in 92, represented Victoria on 14 occasions in the State of Origin Games, inducted into the Hall of Fame in, in 2005, uh, and then, of course, went on to become a coach uh, for the Sydney Swans from 2002 to 2010, leading the club to a final series every season between 2003 and, and 2008, including a prelim in 2003, and then, of course, coaching the Swans to their first premiership in 72 years in, in 2005. And then after some time away from senior coaching, uh, he was appointed coach of the Melbourne Footy Club and trusted with the arduous task of, of helping to re- rebuild the club uh, in 2014 through to 2016. So, Rusey, mate, there's no denying your resume speaks volumes to what you've been able to produce. I want to start today, though, by by talking about the process. Outcomes are great, um, and I think it's important to have that North Star that we're working towards for that direction and motivation at times. But I've heard you talk um, quite eloquently about prioritizing the process. So, I'd love to know, what do you mean by this and, and how have you applied that approach and that thinking to your 
career as a player and as coach? Yeah, I think if you look at it from a footy point of view, and yeah, every team wants to win a premiership, obviously, and in order to do that, you first need to make the eight and potentially, you know, top four sort of thing. But what I think what we did at Sydney really well, and myself and the other assistant coaches, we we made it really clear to the players what made a good day. You know, if if we did certain things really really well, we knew statistically we were going to win, and I, I think having formulated a really clear plan for the players really helped them think about well well, even though our goal is to win a premiership it's been 72 years this is doable you know we can break this down if we can do this you know every Saturday or you know the weekend depending on where we play the majority of time so the coaching group of Sydney did an amazing job just to really articulate what that looked like from a corporate point of view, and I talk about this a lot, you know, everyone wants to make budget, but what makes a good day? And I don't think whether it's sport or whether it's business, I don't think people really break it down enough to say, well, I'm in a sales position. You know, what I've worked out is if I make 15 calls in a day, I typically, you know, I'll have a 50% success rate. And then out of that 50%, you know, I typically write X amount of dollars, you know, so I, you know, I have to make this certain amount of calls. If I do that, I have a pretty successful week. In footy, we were able to articulate that through a number of of key indicators and we were able to sell that to the players and show the players that it was actually in in fact true. Um, We had a number of key stats and we knew if we reached them, we won 80% of games. Now, clearly, if you win eight out of 10 games, you're going to play um, in the final series and more likely finish in the top 10. And if you can duplicate those key indicators in finals, you're going to win games of football. So that's really what I mean by the process is, you know, don't, you have a real clear understanding. I believe leadership is about that. Really clearly articulating to your team, to your staff, exactly what makes a good day. And if you have enough good days, you have enough good weeks, you make monthly budget and you make the yearly budget and, and in footy. If you have enough good weekends, you know, you end up typically playing in the final. So really that's that's the best way I can articulate what we talk about as process in a footy club. Yeah, I love that. And I'm really glad you touched on how that applies to the outside of the footy world as well. Um, I, I wanted to get some th- your thoughts around how the everyday listener can apply it to their life, whether it is sport or business um, or, or relationships or whatever it might be. Like I touched on, I think the outcomes are great and it gives you that sense of direction, but um, ultimately it's how you get there. So really well said. Uh, Ruzi, there's a few topics I want to explore with you today and I know we're limited for time, so I want to extract as much value um, as I can, uh, not only for myself and my learning, but for the listeners too. But uh, I'd be kicking myself if we didn't talk footy a little bit, um, but perhaps maybe from a slightly different perspective. Um, we'll weave some thoughts around your mindset and philosophy throughout the conversation too. Um, and of course, I want to talk about what you're up to now. But the 05 Grand Final uh, against West Coast, one of the most memorable moments, like I touched on, um, I know I still get goosebumps when I watch back the final moments of the game. Can you talk us through what that feeling was like to achieve what is essentially the holy grail in football. Uh, what was that experience like for you, mate? Yeah, I think because I'd had a really good think about it the night before and and probably one of the things I really wanted to do is not get overawed by, you know, the situation if we did win. And, and you think through the night before as a coach and that day, you think, well, if we lose and if we win, and you sort of rehearse it a little bit. And I, and I made a conscious decision to say, look, if we do win, I, I really want to be present and I really want to, you know, um, enjoy the moment. And I think because I already thought through that, um, 
I was able to do that at the end of the game. Um, I mean, when Dean Cox marked the ball, I remember I looked down the other end of the ground because I knew there wasn't much time to go. So I actually didn't see Leo's mark. And then I think it was Peter Jonas, one of our coaches, yelled out, Leo's marked it. And then someone else yelled out because we couldn't hear the siren. Someone else yelled out, the siren's gone. And I think from that moment, I was able to switch really quickly um, into that present thought process and sort of say, well, what do I want to get done in the next, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? First was to thank my coaches and we were able to just sit in the box for a little while and and, and congratulate each other, which was really important. I remember walking down because in 05, the, the coach's box was on the other side of the ground and you walk through the crowd. I remember walking through the crowd and the faces of the Sydney fans and the smiles and the hugs and the thank yous and all that. I remember getting on the ground and seeing my wife and the boys and yeah, then many, many, many people had put in that much time and effort into the footy club, both current and past people. You know, obviously Richard Collis and um, yeah, um, Andrew McMaster, who's on the board, and then there's there's Mike Willisy and Peter Weinard and Basil Sellers and guys that had you know put their hand in their pocket over and over and over again. And then there was the past players of Barry Round and Dennis Carroll and uh, players themselves, clearly, and and then Paul Kelly giving me the cup sort of thing. So. Yeah, look, it was pretty special. And I think you finally realised, because everyone was talking about 72 years, and it was hard to put into context what that really meant, to be perfectly frank. But once we won the game, I think we fully realised, you know, how important it was to so many people to have the Swans win the premiership. And I think that's probably what hit home straight away. I can imagine. So then the next one for you. Has it been hard? And I reckon for you, mate, just uh, knowing the little that I do uh, about you, uh, and your and your ability to stay present, it might be okay. But did you find it was hard to recreate or, or architect that same feeling um, outside of the football arena? Yeah, it is. There's no doubt because you know one of the great things about being involved in football, whether that's winning a premiership or whether that's playing for Fitzroy, you know, when I first started in 1981, is is the collective mindset of everyone doing something together and then the ability to walk off the field in triumph. So it's it's very difficult to emulate that. But I think if you break it down to what it really is, and I know Lee Matthews articulates this really well, he says, look, even the most successful coaches lose once every three weeks. So it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty thankless task sort of thing. So if you break it down to people, you can still – you can still communicate with those people. And I think that's that's the way as a player, you know, and I know a lot of players say I couldn't find the same thing outside of footy and I really struggled, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if you maintain some sort of connection, which I have, even, you know, I walk every Sunday with, you know, a group of Fitzroy players that I'm forever indebted with. And, you know, we talk about, for the first time ever, we talk about Fitzroy stories. You know, if you run into a Leo Barry or Benny Matthews was an assistant coach and, um, you know, Georgie Stone. And, and if you keep associating yourself with Rossi Lyons, great mate, you're still connected to that. So I think you've got to break it down to the experience and break it down to people because if you purely put it down to that winning and losing, yeah, you can't duplicate winning a grand final. It's impossible. But really, it doesn't happen that often anyway. So, you know, I've been out of move on I've been able to you know as you said just do the things I enjoy doing and I and I connect myself to the people that I dearly love because of the experience that they shared with me in that moment in 2005 yeah I love that just so then 
outside of the the 05 grand final, um, had a lot of time in footy. Was there maybe one or two other memories you could share with us that that stand out for you, whether that's on the field or off the field, uh, maybe some moments that helped shape you as a player or as a coach? Um, yeah, is there anything that stands out for you that maybe we might not know about? Um, yeah, again, connecting with the Fitzroy players has been great. And, I, and I, we talk a little bit about it. We, we went on a pre-season camp back in about 1984, you know, as a group of players, which was really, really unusual. You know, we went to Hawaii, um, you know, and it was a leap of faith. I think Chris Jones and Robert Walls. And to get a group of guys to get away, it used to happen at the end of the season, but pre-season um, was quite amazing you know as a as a sort of 20 year old you know getting out of the country seeing another country and I think that's something that I really look back on fondly um I I think my the game that I if I look at from a coaching point of view we'll talk a lot about Sydney but I remember beating Hawthorne coaching Melbourne in my last year and and it really was a milestone for the club you know Hawthorne had been a dominant team and um you know, smashed Melbourne certainly in my time even then. And I remember kicking six goals or six or seven goals in the last quarter and beating them. And and that was a real feeling of satisfaction. I guess one's at the start of my career and runs at the end of my career. So they're probably two moments that I haven't sort of spoken a lot about. But to walk off the MCG with the Melbourne Footy Club that have been sort of kicked a lot through that period and to beat a dominant side, to do it, you know, in, in the home crowd. And, you know, so that was pretty special to sort of punctuate, I think I had about, I don't know, four or five coaching weeks to go um, yeah, at Melbourne. So they're, they're probably two, one at the start and one at the end that I haven't spoken too much about. I actually remember that game um, against the Hawks. That was that was a beauty to watch. So I can I can imagine the feeling would be pretty sensational. Hey, um, Ruzi, you spent a bit of time on the bench, if I'm not mistaken, in the last couple of years um, as a player, certainly by comparison to, to most of your career anyway. And I've heard you talk about how that allowed you some time to essentially reflect and, and take note of what was going on in the game. And and if I'm not mistaken, those insights then formed the basis for, for how you inevitably went on to coach. Is that right? Yeah. So 1998, which was my last year, it was interesting. The interchange wasn't used a lot back then. So it was more, you know, when someone got injured and probably about halfway through 98 in my last year, I, I found myself starting on the bench a couple of times. And then certainly towards the end of the season, we made the finals and I was on the bench in the two finals that we played. And yeah, well, it was, whilst at the time it was frustrating, it was actually probably one of the most um, important times in my playing career from a coaching point of view because I started to look through the eyes of a different type of player and I was always, you know, in the team and I was always a pretty good player so I didn't have to worry about getting picked and so forth. But then suddenly I had this thought process, well, not every player goes into the game with the same mentality. There's guys that actually miss out on the, the team. There's guys that are nervous at selection. There's guys that start on the bench and, yeah, it really did and then, I started to think through the eyes of the collective group rather than just myself. And I say this a lot, even the most selfless player really has to look after himself first um, to, in order to get himself up and, and play well on the weekend. So um, that was fascinating just to be able to look through those eyes. And then, yeah, that led me to writing down some stuff at the end of 1998 um, through the eyes of a player. And I didn't ever know whether I was going to coach, but, you know, what I liked about my coaches and what I what I didn't like about my coaches um, and that was a really important part of me doing that because I was able to 
write some things down, not necessarily from you know, one of the better players in the team, but one of the guys that was struggling. So it gave me a great opportunity. I didn't ever know I was going to coach, but I never, ever wanted to forget what it was like to be a player had I become a coach. And it was certainly the doctrine you know, that I, I lived with and held myself accountable to from 11 and a half years of coaching. So how did that process come about uh, and landing that senior role at the Swans? I think I've heard you talk um, about Rodney Eade coming to, who I believe is the coach at the time, uh, having a chat to you. And uh, it was an interesting story. Could you t- talk us through that process of how it all happened and when you first considered putting your hand up t- uh, to be a senior coach? Yeah, well, I started as assistant coach, um, sort of a part-time assistant in 2000, full-time assistant coach in 2001. So I really sort of thought to myself, I'm going to have a fair bit of time to decide whether I'm going to be a coach or not. And so I'm, you know, we're all sitting there. We knew there was a bit of pressure on Rocket midway through 2002. Um, and we'd lost a game against Geelong and, you know, it was pretty bad loss. And we were, I think, four wins and eight losses or something along those lines. And I was sitting in my office and I got a phone call from Steve Quartermain who was working at Channel 10. He said, Ruthie, I heard um, Rodney Lee's going to give it away today. And I'm like, well, not that I heard of quarters. Um, and then about 10 minutes later, Johnny Blakey rang me. He's an old teammate of mine. And he said, oh, Ruzi, I heard um, Rocket's going to give it away. So I thought, hang on, what's going on here? So I jumped out of my chair and walked into Rocket's office, ironically right next to me. I said, mate, I've just got a couple of phone calls. Are you giving it away? He said, yeah, I am. So that's really how we found out about it as a coaching group. And then there was a press conference that day. Then there was a meeting the following day. I think there was myself, uh, Johnny Longmire, Steve Malaxos um, as assistant coaches. Dennis Carroll was the... um, Chairman of Selectors and Cole Seary was um, our football manager at the time and we discussed who was going to be the coach and we talked about will we rotate it or what we do and then Dennis said and Cole said we want you to do it, Rusey, for the rest of the season. So really that was the first time I'd had to think about whether it's something I wanted to do and then, yeah, you're putting your whole coaching career on the line in 10 weeks so it was a big decision because I asked whether you know I was going to get the job longer, and they said no, we can't give you a longer contract, um, but we can give you ten weeks and see how you go, sort of thing. So that's really how it transpired, which was uh, yeah, quite happened in, in a pretty short space of time. <laughs> I suppose though, that time, like we just touched on, um, being on the bench and having those ideas or concepts around the game, probably put you in an okay spot to to dive into the role. I think I've heard you talk about having some dot points or philosophies that you adhere to um, as a coach. Um, could you talk us through that? It was a twenty-five philosophies, I believe that um, uh, that you that you use as a working manual almost as a coach. Yeah. So as I said, at the end of sort of October nineteen ninety-eight, I just happened to sit at my desk and I wrote it through the eyes of a player. What what did I want from a coach as a player? And it ended up just sitting in my desk for the 11 and a half years I coached, you know, eight and a half at Sydney and, and certainly that's the first document I got out. And it was really, I wanted to connect with the players. And I wanted to really understand, you know, what they were going through. Because what I found with coaches, the longer they were out of coaching, the less empathy they had for the players. So there was things on there like, um, you know, treat people with respect um, have good communication skills, um, use more positive feedback than negative feedback, um, never fly off the handle after a game. If you've got nothing to say, don't say anything at all. Yeah, so it became the doctrine of what I really held myself accountable and it allowed me to always look through the eyes of a player. Players don't mean to make mistakes. You know, you, you can imagine, I'm sure you as a fan have sat there and gone, oh, you know, why is... Um, 
you know, such and such kicking the ball out of bounds on the full and why are they missing goals? No one's tried to kick the ball out of bounds on the full and no one's tried to kick a point rather than a goal. But even those simple things for a coach is really valuable to read. And it was just such such an important document for me to hold myself accountable to the coach that I wanted to be. And yeah, really, the only reason I exist is to, to serve the players, to make the players better. So why wouldn't I hold myself accountable to be able to do that? And I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not wrote the list. So it was just a fantastic exercise and, and incredibly valuable through, through my time as a coach. Yeah, I bloody love that, Rosie. You mentioned empathy there and, and a couple other ideas. I um I had Andrew Sturgis on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's the he's newly appointed coach of the uh, the Coburg Lions and the VFL, and we we're talking about coaching in sport and the shift towards a more I guess philosophical approach. Or uh, we're just talking about some of the the changes um, in the role of a coach. Um, is that something that you've seen in recent years? Yeah, look, it's dramatically different. And and to set the scene and to be fair to, you know, Robert Walls and David Parker, I mean, we were part-time footballers. You know, Wallsy was a right. school teacher, Parker was a, Parker was a lecturer. Yeah, we'd get down to training. Most guys would get there at 4, 4, 15, you know, throw their bag down or whatever they did, put their gear on, ran out the training track, train till, you know, 8 o'clock, 7, 7.30 at night, jump in the car, go home. So, yeah, really it was just train harder, be tougher, get yelled at, not a lot of tactics, you know, and I learned some incredible lessons from all those coaches. Fast forward to sort of when I went to Sydney in 95, you know, I started to become a full-time footballer. So then all of a sudden you had this a much greater amount of time to interact with your players and it really changed at the end of 90s, early 2000s. And again, that's why I wrote the list. So we, you know, we did a lot of different things when I started coaching in 2003 and and now it's really become the norm. You know, you have to build strong relationships with your players. You know, you have to have great empathy for what they're doing, um, great connection. It's no longer about training harder and, you know, yelling at them louder and, and things like this. It's about tactics and communication and, you know, the ability to get through and understand each and every one of their personalities. And it's, it's such a, a complex environment now to be a, an AFL coach. So then just on that, Ruzi, is that something that, – is that skill set uh, – does that need to be innate in a coach? I'm just thinking for aspiring coaches that are listening potentially. Is that a skill set that you found was innate within you or is that something that you – I guess intentionally tried to build um, in your in your skill set that ability to yeah. connect with people to to kind of lead, you know to relate and and to have that empathy. Yeah, I think I was fortunate. Probably a combination of both, um, and I was really lucky to go to Fitzroy and have some great role models. So I picked up that notion of being a really good role model. They were good people on and off the field. Um, which has effectively helped me throughout my whole playing career and coaching career. I'm probably a naturally pretty calm sort of person. Um, so I've got some natural characteristics, which I think have helped. But also, you know, I travelled overseas in 1999 and we lived in America and I went and visited, you know, some NFL clubs, some some the Chicago Bulls, which was great watching The Last Dance, having been there in 1999. Yeah, wow. Um, so yeah, and so I think you can learn reading books. So it's a combination of both. So any aspiring young coaches or leaders out there, you know, I would advise getting books on relationships and books on empathy and books on leadership and culture and just read them because what I've noticed, you know, moving more into the leadership space, they all come back to sort of four or five key principles and it really is where AFL football headed in the late 90s, you know, when it became full-time and what we did at Sydney and now 
you know, all clubs, the challenge is to get the balance of incredibly high standards, really good relationships, really open and honest conversations. And it's, it's you know, you're walking a tightrope all the time and it's a really difficult job, but it's the only way you can win a premiership, really. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like how you touched on reading books and essentially making that effort to just improve your skill set. A lot of the stuff I talk about on this show and just in conversations off air, I suppose, is about skill acquisition. It's about um, actually improving and having that intention to get better and knowing that you can. Um, I talk a lot about neuroplasticity, the idea that, the, that as humans, we're essentially the ultimate adaptation machine and we can grow and change and and get better and, and just uh, again I've, I've heard you talk a lot and um, followed your career so I, I knew you would uh, share a similar sort of perspective so really interesting to, um, to hear someone with such a decorated career uh, talk about that idea of um, yeah just making the effort to get better and and add that skill set if you don't currently don't currently have it so thanks for sharing mate. Yeah, no, I, I think one of the biggest obstacles yeah. is ego too. I mean, that's probably oh, the yeah. biggest challenge for people. And no longer can you be a great leader if you've got this huge ego because it just it just stands in the way. So you've got to have a really good self awareness. You can't be stubborn. So so two of the greatest indicators of poor leaders are, are egos and and stubborn and the inability to ask good questions, the inability to ask people's the inability to say we messed up and you know we can do a better job next time and we're certainly seeing a lot of that now you know which is which is quite fascinating to see but ego and you know the, the stubborn are two of the worst traits you can have to be a, a great leader yeah absolutely it's certainly a bottleneck and you see that um, in too many cases i want to talk about role models for a minute rosie um <clears throat> i've heard you talk about some of the players essentially raising their standards within 10% of each other. Uh, I think you might have been referencing some of the Sydney guys with Brett Kirk leading the charge with his with his training and his intensity and the way he goes about his footy. I think it might have been uh, perhaps Nick Davis, who by his own admission uh, perhaps wasn't as focused on the training track, uh, but went together. They were all pretty much within about 10% of each other. So a couple of questions on that. Uh, I mentioned Brett Kirk there, but who were – who were some of the other players from your time in footy that you felt really led by example um, to raise their standards? And then also just on that topic of role models, do you think that same law of osmosis almost of being around good people applies to all areas of life? Yeah, so if I go back to my days at Fitzroy, we had so many, and I talk about this a lot, Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinlan, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, um, Scotty Clayton, uh, Matty Rin, you know, it, it's endless. And I was really, really fortunate. You know, Gary Wilson is just an exceptional role model. Um, you know, he was our captain at Fitzroy when I first arrived. There was no such thing as an off night for Gary Wilson. There was no such thing as getting off the track at the same time as everyone else. And he was our most talented player as well. So seeing that as a young player was amazing but there was a whole and he dragged everyone along Mickey Conlon was another one they just dragged everyone along and you know we had a real high performing group in the early 80s unfortunately due to circumstances with money and Fitzroy and players leaving but yeah they were an incredible group of role models Stewie Maxfield for me is the standout you know Stewie was the pioneer of this new captaincy model which went away a little bit from that the best player or the most talented player and I remember yeah, when we chose Stewie as captain of, of Sydney going in the 2003 season, people were like, well, hang on, Stewie Maxfield wouldn't be in their top 10 players. and But it was all about that notion of role modelling. You know, Stewie just dragged everyone along. He said, well, this is the way we're going to train. This is the way we're going to play. This is the way I'm going to lead. You, you come with me or, you know, you, you, you get out of the way, you know. 
So he he really was the driver of, of that those standards, um, and he was incredible. And then he taught the next generation. And you mentioned Kirky, and obviously you know guys like Goodsy and Leo Barry, and and the lineage keeps on going at Sydney. Judas Dewey's you know great role modelling under a new model that we created in two thousand and three, which was which was fantastic and. Yeah, I think it's when I talked about the ten percent. You're right. I mean, when most players, when they're at the footy club, yeah, we'll train within ten percent. It's what you do when no one's watching, and that doesn't matter whether it's football, it doesn't matter whether it's life, it doesn't matter whether it's your mother, father, or sister, brother. What what are you doing when no one's watching? That's what your your culture is. That's what your behaviours are. Um, you know, and that's the real challenge for AFL players. You know, if you want to be great. It's not about what you're going to do at the footy club because everyone will be doing that. It's what you're doing away from the footy club that's going to make you great. And that's what I learned from my time at, at Fitzroy. Do you think that gives you that edge, knowing what you do behind the scenes? I've, I've heard Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, you were talking um, about the, the Bulls there. Uh, I've heard them talk about the work they do off the field um, or out of the game, I should say, that gave them that edge, that confidence, whether it's their fitness, their skill. Do you think you have it? Having that um, that understanding of the work you do behind the scenes gives you an edge in footy, in sport, or in life. Yeah, and I think it's also that self awareness too, because not everyone this. And sometimes when we think about this notion of doing extra, it's about you know punishing yourself with a run or whatever weight room. What I look at is what's best for you. You know that ability to understand. Well, I, I've got to prepare myself to turn up to be the best version of me. So while for LeBron or Kobe it might be an extra, you know, hour in shooting or, you know, half an hour in the gym, but what is, what is it for you, you know, that makes you the best version of you? Is it taking the dog for a walk and clearing your head? Is it meditating in the morning? Is it going for an extra run? Is it going for an extra gym session? Is it eating better? Is it making sure you get to bed on time? That's what's showing up in the best possible way because if I look at myself, if I was playing well and, and we're creatures of habit, you know, as a player, I wouldn't change anything. You know, I would go, okay, well, that's to the point where sometimes you go, well, I didn't really train last week because I was injured. You know, you sort of look at ways to go, well, I've, I've played really well. So right. how do I not get out of training but how do I sort of try and duplicate <laughs> last week? You know, so it's not always – I think that's a bit of a misconception – around and I think what I learned again through my time at Fitzroy you could see guys just doing so many different things for themselves and some were lifting weights some were getting on the track and kicking some were doing marking practice you know some I knew you know had a better eating regime and and I guess what I learned from that it's not ever one cap fits all and I think when you're looking at great athletes don't learn from a Kobe and a LeBron and a Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael in the last dance I thought was amazing, but not everyone's going to be Michael Jordan. What works for you? And my point is, if you're an athlete, you're 24-7. You know, it's not something you can pick and choose. Now, that doesn't mean you're training 24-7. That means you're sleeping and eating and doing all those sort of things. So what works for you? But be honest with yourself. Look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, I've done everything I possibly can today to get the best out of myself and I can put my head on the pillow at night knowing that that's the case. Yeah, that is huge. That is huge. And I suppose that starts with ha- uh, knowing what your goal is. So obviously, for a footballer, it's really to win games and, and to win the grand final, of course. And having that sense of clarity helps then uh, 
work out what you need to do or what you need to adjust. And I think for too many people, and I'm glad we're talking about this because I think it's a really important point to make um, for too many people outside of sports, it's hard to firstly identify what it is you actually want. And then if you haven't got that North Star, it's hard then to get the process right. It's hard to have that self-awareness of, of what to do when. Could you talk to us a bit more about the importance of having that clarity and that purpose, that sense of direction, number one, and then two, how do you then go about, I guess, becoming curious and open to adjusting your approach, even if it means putting your ego aside or, or changing something? You mentioned there about being creatures of habit. If it's not working, how do you um, how do you pivot and adjust? Yeah, I think it's about what your priorities are in, in your life. I, there's a couple of things I'd say to that. Is what are your priorities? A lot of, lot of work around you know, con- about purpose. Why do you exist as a human being? You know, what's important to you? And list them down. If it's money, put money down. You know, if, that, if that's what drives you, don't be embarrassed about what drives you because it's going to drive you anyway, regardless of whether you write it down. But if you can get some clarity around it, if it's family, okay, family. So everything I do doesn't mean you don't do anything else. So let's say it's family, it's health, it's work is number three. So articulate it, write down why do I exist as a human being? What, what's my purpose? And through that, you'll find your passion. And, and once you find your passion, then it's easy to get out of bed every single day, isn't it? Because I'm passionate about it. Also, what's your personal brand? What do you stand for as a human being? You know, mm. write that down as well. What are, what are, what are the characteristics? If, if I had someone describe me, what would they say about, you know, Paul Ruse? And is that what you would like people to say about you? People talk about what would you like written on your headstone when you when you pass away? You know, Paul Ruse was X, Y, Z. So think about those things and then you can start crafting, you know, what you want to be in life. I think the other thing is people, we don't take our own personal health serious enough. And this this is what just probably surprises me the most. You know, a little light goes off in the car. What do we do? We take it to the mechanic. You know, and, and we'll spend a fortune on our car. We'll take it to get it cleaned. We'll get it detailed. We'll take it for a service every, you know, 10,000 kilometres. You know, we'll register it. We'll put, you know, we'll go to the service station and we'll, okay, I'll look at, no, I'm, I'm going to put premium unleaded in my car. Yet we don't treat ourselves like that. It's it's incredible how poorly we treat ourselves. And then we, we can't work out why we're stressed, why we're not getting on with people, why we're angry all the time, because we're not turning up the best version of ourselves. Now, that, again, that's going to be different for everyone. But, yeah, they're the things I think you really need to get right. What, what is my purpose? You know, what, what, are, what are my priorities? What's my personal brand? What's the sort of person I want to stand for? And do I want to be the best version of me? And what does it look like? Now, that might be, yeah, going for a bike ride. It might be going for a run. It might be meditating every morning. It might be doing yoga. It, but it's certainly, as a society, through this pandemic, we know we have to get healthier. And if we don't know that now, well, you know, we're never going to find out because we need to get healthier as a nation. We need to get healthier as a planet. And that needs to be an absolute priority once we come out of this. Mate, I'm grinning for me to I almost want to jump through the bloody microphone because I, I couldn't agree more aggressively, particularly on the health stuff there. And and almost having that curiosity of, of what is going to work. Meditation, is it Firstly, identifying your purpose and really just getting your body right. And I know for me, mate, and look, not to derail too much here, but um, people I've spoken with a little bit on here and but also off air, um, I've had challenges with um, my psychology and mental health. I know a lot of people listening have, uh, particularly at a time like this throughout this bloody um, COVID nightmare. But um, 
getting my diet right, my exercise regime, introducing a meditative practice and just finding what what has worked has been, um, at the risk of sounding cliche, mate, it's been life-changing. It's been huge. And I think it's a message I really, really want to push is get your bloody diet right, eat right, move, um, get your psychology right. And a lot of that starts with trial and error, I've found anyway, as to what's going to work for you. Um, And uh, we'll talk a little bit more in a moment about meditation and and mindfulness and, and how I suppose you've used that in your life and, and your thoughts around that but um certainly for me mate it's, it's been massive so i'm really glad you shared those thoughts yeah that's fantastic and, and reading yeah reading your story and i think yeah ultimately no one wants to go through bad times and you know as i said reading your story feeling yeah for what you've mm. been through but it, I suppose part of what your mindset's got to be is well, I can't change what's happened, but I but I can actually do something about it. And I think people tend to spend too much time on what's happened rather than finding a solution. So, you know, congratulations to you, yeah, your ability to move past what happened and the ability to then to say, well, what can I actually do about it? And I think that's part of yeah, you know, the, the, probably the most difficult thing is is taking the personal responsibility for continuing to get better. And yeah, you know, the message to me for people out there that are going through tough times, yeah, you know, particularly at the moment, is don't be embarrassed about it. There's lots of people that are there to help you. Ask someone, reach out to people. Don't do it by yourself um, because there's many, many people that'll help you do it. And then it's one step at a time. You know, get out of bed. Um, you know, put one step in front of the other. You're going to have some setbacks. You're going to have bad days, but just keep moving forward and 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 bounce it off the people you love and trust and and know have got your best interest in at heart. Yeah, that's huge. I found retaining that sense of agency or controls been been a really pivotal um, thing to be aware of. I suppose, and I know for me, just just while we're on this subject, I look at it as a, as a CIA approach. I'm not sure if you've come, come across this, and I'm, throughout my my time in management and business, it's something I I learned and applied to business, but it worked really well for life. And that's this uh, nice little acronym of CIA: Control, Influence, or Accept. And yeah. that idea of having personal responsibility. Um, look, what happened to me a few years ago. I can't control it's done and I know people listening can relate in, in some capacity that you know you, you can't control what's happened in the past but moving forward I think it's really important to look at if you can't control it it is what it is yeah. um can can you then influence it and if not do you have to accept it and there's sort of the three Yeah it's good um, yeah good advice yeah yeah three approaches and um it's yeah it certainly certainly served me um quite well so mate I want to change lanes a little bit uh, outside of the footy community you're still pretty heavily involved in the leadership space, um, what have you got going on? I know you've got uh, performance by design, is, is it, and the, the nurture group? Talk to us about um, what you've got going on there. Yeah, yeah, I've got two companies. Which I've got some partners in both, which is performance by design, which is a culture leadership business, and then I got involved in some retreats, which I love, which is um, small medium business retreats called nurture group retreats, um, which have obviously been put on hold a little bit. But yeah, look, both trying to have an impact you know it's never been more important to have great leaders and you touched on before is it is it learned is it innate um you know so i tend to think you know it's both and as i said before so how can i influence and use my 30 odd years of experience in football and leadership space and pass on those really valuable skills to leaders about culture so you know, in performance by design, we tend to work with all different size companies and we work with the exec teams and we try to get 
as much buy-in from their whole staff as we possibly can. And yeah, I talk about not leaving culture to chance, um, which is really important. And in the nurture group events, you know, we try to upskill, you know, predominantly small, medium businesses, leaders. Um, you know, what, what is it? Because a lot of people, you know, come into a business with not those skills. They have really good technical skills, but don't really know much about, you know, bringing people together. You know, we talked about it before, relationships, empathy, self-awareness. Um, so, yeah, look, I love it. It's a great space to exist in. And, again, I, I don't think it's ever been more important you know, to talk about leadership, um, you know, we need great leaders. We need to make some change, you know, in so many areas of our lives. But we need great leaders and it's, it's something I really am passionate about. So what are some of the key things for, for people in a leadership position, whether it's in a company and a sporting organisation or, you know, within, within a family dynamic potentially? So what are some of the key things to be aware of and to be an effective leader? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is I notice, whether that's corporate or sport, I mean, people typically get promoted because they're technically very good at what they do. You know, an assistant coach is technically very good, gets a coaching role. You know, a um, you know, an accountant um, is very, very good accountant, gets promoted, then suddenly becomes on the exec team. So they're technically very good at what they do, but they really haven't developed those skills to bring people along with them, you know, and they're the skills that we you know, try and teach people along the way. You know, what is culture? You know, there's a lot of buzzwords out there that people really don't understand. What's culture? Culture is really the behaviours you accept and reward. That's what culture is. You know, what is leadership? What is empowerment? You know, all these sort of philosophies we touch on. But if you, in answer to your question directly, to be a leader, you know, you have to communicate and you have to be honest. You have to have great self-awareness. No ego, not no ego, but you have to have an ego that doesn't get in the way um, and some of the, you know, not being stubborn. So they're the things we talk a lot about and we try and upskill people. We get great speakers into our nurture group events, great speakers to talk to them about you know, from a business point of view but also from a sporting point of view, from a wellness point of view. You know, the, the business retreats are fantastic because I believe, as we touched on before, you know, if you can't look after yourself, how can you look after a team of 50, 100, 200 people? You know, it's impossible. So we try to combine this notion of wellness and leadership because they, they can't be seen as mutually exclusive anymore. We have to see them right. intrinsically linked. That the leader, you know, if I want my leader coming to work every day, the best possible version that he can be, I want him healthy. I want him or her going to the gym in the morning or or meditating in the morning. I want to see them doing these things. I want them to encourage me to do these sort of things. Um, yeah, so they're the things we really, you know, particularly performance by design, we try and create a really clear understanding of how we're going to act. And then we talk about acting your way into the system, acting your way out of the system. And we really challenge leaders, CEOs, executives to be role models. You know, you can't ask someone to do something that you're not prepared to do yourself. And one of the great lines of The Last Dance and, and Michael Jordan, and for anyone listening, if you haven't watched that and you don't care about sport, watch it. it it's not a sporting – I mean, obviously, if you love sport, it's great, but it's so <laughs> much about business. What Michael Jordan says, I agree. he says, I never asked anyone to do anything that I didn't do myself. And if you want to articulate what leadership is, that's fundamentally what a leader is, a role model. Don't ask anyone to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. And we talk a lot about that at Performance by Design. So that's step one. Uh, 
do what you want your people to do, how do you then, uh, Ruzi, get buy-in? So you and I know, mate, how important it is to look after your body and the impact that has on your performance um, throughout life and obviously in a business setting. Uh, how do you then get buy-in from, uh, from your people? Yeah, and again, it's about role models. You know, if you've got a clear set of behaviours and everyone's really understanding, I mean, football is such an accountable model and it's so – when I say this, I say this in, in terms of – the conversations we have. It, it's so far advanced in the corporate world because we have regular conversations about performance. We we brief the players before we go into the game. We debrief them individually, collectively. We talk about our technical KPIs on a daily basis. We talk about how we want to act on a daily basis. The reward and challenge system is absolutely off the charts for the good football teams, not the bad football teams, but for the good football teams. So in order to create that, that same environment, you just do the same thing. What what do we want to stand for? What what are we going to accept and what are we going to reward? And then the leaders have to do it first and foremost. So if you want to get up and talk about your people and how much you look after them and don't do anything for them, well, it's complete drivel. You're not a great leader. But if you're a leader that says, I'm going to look after my people and you've got to you know, meditation room at work and a gym at work and I walk past the gym at, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning and the, and the CEO's in the gym, I go, wow, we really do care about our people. There's the CEO. He's gone from the meditation room into the gym. He's worked out. He's had a quick shower and he's, 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 he's coming to work. Or, you know, before every meeting, you know, the, the, the leader of the meeting does a gratitude session and we talk about what we're grateful for and we have a bit of a discussion around what's happening at home and how's the family and how you're going through the pandemic and we have these constant conversations, that's how you create a pretty cool environment. People want to go to work and feel valued. They want to go to work and feel part of something. You know, they don't want to go to work and say, oh, geez, you know. One of the great ways has been articulated to me, when when the leader walks in the room, is he sucking all the energy out of the room? And people go, oh, geez, here comes Rusey. I can't wait to get out of here. Or, oh, here comes Rusey. Fantastic. Let's, let's go and have a chat to him. That's the epitome of leadership. You know, is that leader just sucking the air out of the room or is that leader giving energy to the room when he walks into the room? That's a good indication. Good question to ask. Hmm. Hey, uh, you mentioned mindfulness, uh, meditation, gratefulness practices. I want to talk about that, <clears throat> pardon me, a, a little bit. So, and uh, I think what's super interesting is certainly in in years, uh, let's say twenty years ago, the idea of um, of meditation, gratefulness practices was a certainly um, from a societal point of view mutually exclusive to say a football culture, um, and so. I wanted to get your thoughts around that because I mentioned uh, meditation has been massive for me. What does that look like for you? Is there a right or wrong way to go about it? Where do people start? What are the benefits? Um, I know for me, mate, it's it's primarily about transitioning back in uh, from the the sympathetic nervous system into the parasympathetic nervous system and calming my body to then think clearly. And the idea of gratefulness is to is to put my mindset in the right place to then attack the day. So. Yeah, for, for the people listening, mate, where do they start and what are some of the potential benefits for those kinds of practices? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, look, we, I, did, I started meditating like 25-odd years ago, so I did a course. And then my wife, Tammy, who teaches meditation, she did a PhD and, a, and did a dissertation on meditation, which, which I really love. And I, I read it. Mm. I read her PhD about a month ago and I, I said to her, I said, you've got to publish it because I think – 
I think we've got to get away from this notion of what meditation is and we've got to bring it into the mainstream conversation. We know if you eat well, your body's going to get better. We know that if you run, you know, or you exercise, your body's going to get healthier. But what we don't, we haven't been convinced on is if we meditate, as you as you touched on, there's actual physiological changes to your brain. So it actually has a, an effect on you. It actually it has absolute changes and benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So I've always encouraged Tammy to do that. And she does a great presentation because there's, there's normally two or three types of people. There's that person that goes, oh, yeah, yoga or acupuncture or gratitude or mindfulness. That sounds great. They try it. Um, there's the one that sort of starts it and goes, oh, I can't see the benefit in a week, and they sort of stop it. And then there's the one that go, oh, I'm not going to sort of start it. They're the ones you need to explain. They're the, normally the academics. And if you can explain to them exactly, and there's been so much research paper done on, on the benefits of meditation. I think even Tim Ferriss did a, did a study and, he's, and he found the only, the one constant theme of the 100 most successful people in the world was they all meditated, which was quite, well, wasn't amazing to me and you, but right. I think it was a surprise for him. So what we've got to get across to, to people is this is giving your mind a rest. This is helping your mind. Tammy talks about it a lot really well. No one would take a job if you said you've got to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you're not going to get any time off. That's effectively what we're asking our mind to do. So how do we give our mind a break? We do it through breathing exercises. We do it through meditation. And it has these benefits where it changes the, the brain waves. And, and Tammy's better at articulating exactly the benefits. Um, it actually has real, real benefit. And through that, you're going to become a lot clearer. You're going to become a lot more less stressed out. You're going to become a lot uh, better at making decisions under pressure. You're going to have better relationships. Um, I mean, Liam, you're probably better, you know, in terms of what you've been through. I mean, you know, the benefits that you've seen you know, are incredible. But to try to articulate them to people that are very analytical, um, and that's why I keep saying to Tammy, you know, you've got to get across the absolute benefits from a, you know, physiological point of view and then people start to go, oh, okay, okay, because there's a lot of trust around it. You've got, to, you've got to continue to practice and practice and practice it. But I certainly wouldn't have been the coach that I was and didn't wouldn't have the ability to make the decisions under pressure. I wouldn't have the ability to articulate things to the players you know, prior to a grand final or quarter time, half time, three quarter time, you know, without that constant practice of, of meditating. Yeah, I could not agree more, Rosie. And certainly for me, um, sort of, I sort of alluded to it throughout this chat. Um, it's been massive. And it really was, uh, I, I found that after I had uh, my injury and essentially some damage to my to my brain, I, I, it took the silver lining was it took me down this rabbit hole of looking into, you know, psychology and the brain and, and all that sort of stuff. And I am somewhat analytical. So it's looking at it from a science point of view and going, oh, well, okay, shit, if I actually do this, yeah. this is what's going to happen. If I do it over an extended period of time, you know, the same way I wouldn't expect to go into the gym, lift uh, lift weights for one day and, and you know, expect to look jacked the, ne yeah. the next day. There is a process to it. And I suppose applying that same knowledge to a meditative practice meant that I was able to stick with it. And then knowing the science behind it and then allowing the time, um, yeah, over, over a time period, I actually 
I found that I was able to transition into a more calm and creative state, which then helps with one, just feeling better, which is, I mean, ultimately, you know, life's pointless if you're not feeling good. And then two, being able to, yeah, think clearly towards my business objectives and, um, and what have you. So, um, yeah. I think the other thing, mate, is, is just start small. I think that's probably part of the problem that, like, if you, if you've never run before, you're never going to go out and run a marathon. Um, and Tammy's developed this really cool, um, yeah, program that's just one, two, three, four minute meditation. So start small. Don't, and I think sometimes with the, you know, people get told you got to do 20 minutes a day, two times a day or whatever. And then you start and you go, well, I, I just, I can't do that. Again, if you, you took, you use the gym analogy, if someone, you know, never used weights before, you're not going to go to the gym for two hours. You know, you're going to just start with a nice little, you know, 15, 20 minute, um, you know, body circuit, you're going to build that up over a period of time. So use the same process for your mindfulness and your meditation. You know, do nice, simple breathing exercises, you know, do it five minutes in the morning, you know, if you've got a time doing it. And then as you build it up over time, it becomes a non-negotiable because you start to see the benefits that you're getting. And then you, again, similar to eating, similar to sleeping, similar to running and, and lifting weights. Over a period of time, you'll start to see and then it just becomes part of your routine and part of what you do. Now, these ideas, Ruzi, do you share this sort of stuff at the nurture retreats that you put on? Yeah, 100%. So what we like to do with the people that come, we have a really good balance of business and wellness. So we'll start the day off with, you know, some form of activity. We have different, we have yoga, we have, you know, movement. You know, for those that are, you know, at the lower end, I typically take them for a walk along the beach. You know, we just wander up the beach and back. Then Tammy will open the day with a meditation and then we'll have, you know, some speakers that, um, you know, nutrition speakers, uh, body movement speakers, breathing, um, t- talking about breathing. So, yeah, we try and combine this notion of business um, and um, and wellness as well and, and put it in a pretty cool environment, you know, where people uh, love being there, love connecting with each other. And what we do with our speakers, which is really unique to our events, we have the speakers there for the whole time. So they're part of the conference for the whole time. So you're not only getting content from um, you know, Julie Bishop, who spoke last year, and Richard DeCrepney, who landed the Qantas flight. You know, you're not only getting contact from them, Nam Baldwin, who's a, a breathing expert. You're actually sitting at the breakfast with them. You're sitting at lunch with them. You're, you're walking around and sitting by the pool with them. So you're getting these tips in in real time as well as listening to them to them speak, which is uh, pretty, pretty cool. And that's one of the reasons Tammy and I got involved from a business point of view because we went as speakers uh, for the first nurture her one, um, and just loved it so much because it was it was something so unique. We hadn't been to a conference before, just any anywhere near like it. Yeah, wow. And so, where where are these held? Obviously, at the moment with with the current lay of the land with COVID nineteen, I'm sure things are probably disrupted. But um, where do you usually hold these? And have you got thoughts for the for the next one? Yeah, yeah. So we typically in Fiji, the Intercontinental at Fiji, which is a beautiful, beautiful place and lends itself. So look, we've, we've moved them back. They were going to be this year, obviously, but we've moved them back. Um, we may bring one onshore, you know, middle of next year, which might be at Sanctuary Cove. So we're just really finalising dates. But as you can imagine, um, yeah, it's a bit of a moving goalpost at the moment. But yeah, the concept's going to remain the same. The venue might slightly change. We'll certainly have one event at the end of next year back in Fiji, which is amazing which will be the nurture 360 event 
which is a mixed men's and women's one. And um, but yeah, any, anyone that's been to Fiji, it's a, it's an amazing place. The Intercontinental is a great place at Natadola Bay. Um, so that's the the process. But we'll probably get out to our nurture crew pretty soon and and try and finalise some dates. But as you can imagine, it's pretty hard at the moment. Yeah, it's pretty tough, and uh, yeah, man, I'm in, I'm in the travel space. So um, yeah. outside of uh, outside of doing the podcast, I have a, a travel business. So <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> pretty grim at the moment, and a lot of ambiguity. But we'll see how it plays out, uh, mate. Ruzi, I'll let you go. Today was it was awesome. Um, you know, I've I've watched you from afar anyway. You know, as a fan and as as a player, and then obviously into your coaching career. And I've always been really interested in the way you communicate and, uh, and articulate your thoughts. Very much in line with the way I think and the way I and the messages I want to get across i suppose um you know to the people that do listen to to the show so really appreciate you carving out some time and and sharing your thoughts around um footy of course but then also around mindfulness and the work you're doing now um very grateful mate yeah no great conversation mate thanks very very much for having me on and yeah the views as you mentioned that we share together so it's great always communicating with people that have like-minded views and yeah continue having the impact you're having and yeah, hopefully we can catch up once this uh, all finishes. So, yeah, that'd be great, mate. Potentially in Fiji, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll get involved and we'll uh, yeah we'll have a good catch up over a nice uh, asahi bowl or something healthy. I'm sure. Sounds great. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, if you got some sort of value from the episode, please do us a favor and subscribe to the channel. We've got lots more to come and share it with your friends and family. It all helps our mission of raising a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So please share the podcast and I look forward to sharing more with you on another episode.